Our last sermon today in the book of Colossians. I don't know if you get sentimental. I do. So, I'm always a little bit sad when we come to the end of a book. But you know you can keep reading this book. Even after the sermon series is done. So, thankfully Colossians doesn't leave us, but we will leave Colossians as far as Preaching is concerned next week, excited to begin our Advent series, four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas Day, so hope you can make it on those Sundays as we look at love and hope and joy and peace that we have because Christ came. So today, though, we'll wrap up this letter that Paul wrote to Colossians, verses 15 through 18 of chapter 4. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this holy word from you that you've given us. And thank you that we can read it openly this morning without fear of persecution. And thank you that we can hear the preaching of this word and be encouraged and exhorted from it. Thank You for all those who are here today. You've brought them to this hour to receive grace from You. So thank You, God. I pray that all those who feel particularly in need of and desperate for Your grace would, would have it today. And I pray that those who do not feel desperate for Your grace would in the next few moments feel desperate for Your grace and that You would meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A summary of this letter that Paul wrote to Colossians to wrap up the letter today. Chapter 1, remember Paul tells the Colossians about his prayer for them. He tells them about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and about the mission that Christ has given Paul in his ministry to preach the Gospel to people like the Colossians. In chapter 2, Paul speaks to the various false teachings that had become apparently prevalent in Colossae and in the surrounding region. They were spreading. And so Paul writes in chapter 2, admonishing the Colossian Christians to stay the course and to remember chapter 1, who they are in Christ and who Christ is and what He's done so that they wouldn't fall for anything false. In chapter 3, Paul reminds the Colossians to keep their thinking straight, keep their thinking biblical and Christ and Gospel-centered so that they will live this life well. And then he breaks that down even further. Gives them very practical insight into the Christian life. Especially the Christian life at home and at work. Gives us rules for the Christian household. And then in chapter 4, Paul gives some final instructions and some final greetings as he ends his letter. So we'll take this passage today, verses 15-18, through just one verse at a time. So chapter 4, verse 15 to begin with. Paul said in chapter 5, verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul, we read last week, has just sent his greetings to his close friends. And now he has his own personal greetings that he would like to send in addition to the greetings that came from those that were close to him while he was in prison. So he has some personal greetings here. There's a church in Laodicea. He calls them here and addresses them as the brothers at Laodicea. Laodicea was about 10 miles west of Colossae. So it was in the same community, in the same valley in the same region. And so Paul sends them his personal greetings. And specifically in regards to that church in Laodicea, which is 10 miles west of Colossae, 
Paul sends his greetings specifically to a gal there named Nympha and to the church that meets in her house. Churches met in homes until the late 3rd century. This was common. Churches needed to find a home, preferably a big home, depending on how large the church was. But they would gather in homes and did that until the late 3rd century when we first start to see church buildings pop up and central places for gathering to worship. But before that, they were meeting in homes. And apparently, the church in Laodicea at this point is meeting in this gal's home. Her name is Nympha. But notice the language here when it speaks of the church. This is important for us to remember. The church is not the home, but the church meets in the home. So the church is not the home itself, but the church is meeting in the home. So, our church is not this building, but rather our church meets in this building. So this church in this place is not the church. It is the people that make up the church. We're reminded of that here. When he says, sends my greetings to the church, the people that are simply utilizing Nympha's home and meeting in her home. So we're reminded that the church is a people and the church is not a place. And we shouldn't overlook this. Places and people require very different things. So if you see the church as a place, you're going to have a messed up understanding of what the church is and, and what being a part of the church requires of you if you see it as a place. But if you see the church as a people, then that's going to require something different from you. Places are used and maintained and often forgotten, and people are none of those things. People are not to be used. People are not to be maintained. I mean, some of us require some maintenance. And people are not to be forgotten. So when you and I say, and I say it, I'm going to church, do you really mean I am going to worship God with the church? That's what we need to mean when we say that. So it's not bad to say that. And everybody says that. I'm sure some of you said that this morning. Right? It's time to go to church. Now I just hope that you don't think or mean that this building is the church. That language can give us a misunderstanding. And then that will require less of us as Christians. If I'm just going to go to the church, I'm just going to sort of watch and I'm just going to sort of spectate and I'm just going to sort of consume and get things there. See, that's a misunderstanding. If I mean when I go to church that I'm going to worship God with the church on the only hour of the entire week I get to do that, now it's going to have some meaning and some significance. And it will require something different from you. So we don't always say in our family, we're going to worship tomorrow morning. But we do try to say that quite a bit. So that we get that understanding in our minds and in our kids' minds. We're going to worship. Get ready for worship. Prepare for worship. So we're reminded of that in verse 15. Verse 16, Paul said, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So this verse gives us insight into how Paul's epistles or his letters were handled by the early church. It gives us insight into what happened once the letter left Paul. Right, what happened with that letter? And this verse and other verses are really helpful. The letter of Colossians 
right, was written to the church in Colossae, but we read it today. It doesn't say to the saints in Roseville. Okay, but we read it today and we take the liberty of applying it to our lives as if it was addressed to us. So do we have the liberty to take a letter that was written to Colossae and apply it to ourselves like that? Why, why do we do that? Well, that's nothing new. That is nothing new. It was taking place in the first century. Colossians was never just written for the Colossians. You see that in verse 16. It was written to them, but it was never written only for them. So here's how it worked. They would receive the letter, or the Ephesians would receive the letter, or the Galatians would receive the letter, and then they would read the letter. Typically, they would gather together, like on a Sunday morning. They would gather together, and they would have a letter that had come to them from Paul. And they would publicly just read Paul's letter. And then after they read Paul's letter, the following week, they would make a copy of that letter. Or they would make multiple copies of that letter. And then they would take the original, or they would take one of the copies, and they would send it and pass it on to another church. And then that church would do the same thing. They would read the letter, then they would make copy or copies of the letter, and then they would pass the letter on to another church. And apparently we learned from verse 16 that there was a letter uh, from the Laodiceans, a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans. And Paul wants them to swap letters. So Colossians, you read your letter, and then the Laodiceans are going to read their letter, make copies, and then you're going to swap. Okay, Because God's Word is for, it's for all of you. We don't think we have this letter. One of the letters written by Paul that we don't have. Some think it might be the letter to the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, if you read it, has no personal qualities as you read through the letter uh, that are in regards to Ephesus. Whereas you read Colossians and other letters, he's clearly talking about specific things that were happening and specific people in that church. You don't have that in Ephesians. So something that Paul wrote that letter is a sort of general letter. And the first ones it went to were to the Ephesians. And then it, and it got passed on. So it, it could be that letter. Or it could just be a letter that Paul wrote that we no longer have. There are other letters like that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul said, I wrote to you, in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, we don't have that letter. Apparently, there was another letter before 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we don't have it. Presumably, if we had it, it would be in our Bible. But it hasn't been preserved by God's providence. It hasn't been preserved for us. And so there are other letters that we may not have from Paul. So that might be this letter that was written to the Laodiceans. Also notice, we can pull out from this verse 16, that in addition to the preaching of the Word, there was simply the reading of God's Word that took place when Christians gathered together. There was just the reading of these letters. There was preaching from God's Word, but there was also just the reading of God's Word that was a regular part. We see that in the New Testament. It was a regular part of their worship together. No commentary on it. No preaching from it. But there was a time where there was just, during their gathering together, the reading of God's Word. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Three different things. Just the public reading of Scripture, then the exhortation from Scripture or preaching, and then teaching. All three of those things were taking place. Just the reading of God's Word was a big deal. And it was a blessing. Paul took it very seriously. 1 Thessalonians 5.27 He said, 
I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. How seriously did Paul take the reading of God's Word in the public assembly of the church? Very seriously. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I wonder what the anticipation would have been like when you received a letter from the Apostle Paul that had never been read before. Can you imagine that? I thought about that this week. Imagine the news that a messenger had come and Paul had written you a new word. So there's a new word because Paul, right, an apostle, prophet of God, a mouthpiece of God, and he has written you a letter. A letter from Paul, but they know, they understand that while Paul wrote this letter, it has been breathed out by God. Inspired by God. So when they received the letter from Paul, they received a letter from God that they'd never read before. A new and fresh word from God. New revelation from God. Can you imagine the anticipation when someone would get up to read that kind of a letter? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul said, We also thank God constantly for this, Thessalonians, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, okay, these letters, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. And that's supposed to be our attitude. When we read the Bible, these are not the words of men, merely. These are words from God. Words that are at work in you. And only the Bible does that. Words that are at work in you. God's truth, God's Word, and no other word does this. Working in you throughout your days. The Thessalonians recognized that. That's why Paul said, I put you under oath. Are you reading these letters? This is not just you know, my thoughts and opinions. And every once in a while, Paul would have to say, Do you, are you forgetting who I am? And it was not about him, right? He always gives these disclaimers. Hey, I'm not boasting. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, but I am right, a mouthpiece of God. Are you reading these letters? It's true for us today. Are we taking God's Word seriously like that? Do, do, do we have a sense of anticipation when we come to God's Word? Do you grow like I do? Just sort of numb sometimes to God's Word? You sort of become inoculated to God's Word? I've read that so many times that it just doesn't have the effect and it doesn't feel like it has the power that it used to have. You get up in the morning and you go out to my office and, and read the Bible, but it's so cold this morning. It's freezing. And to get to my office, I've got to go outside my house and walk like three and a half feet <laughs> to my office. And for those three and a half heat, feet, there's no heat. So I really want to do that right now. These are thoughts that, 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 that are like literally sometimes like dumbbells on my chest in my bed. It's so warm. And my wife is next to me. Right now we got this, this little baby I can hear breathing. <laughs> right? It's like one of the sweetest sounds. And it's just it's so warm and it's peaceful. And this is the only time it'll be peaceful. <laughs> All day. Until 10 o'clock. It, it, it won't be peaceful like this. And it's just quiet and no one's, no one's doing anything and it's dark. And why would I want to get up? Like these weights. And what, what, is, what is it that's waiting in my, in my office? It's just my Bible. It's my Bible. Is that enough? Is that enough to drag me up 
and to drag me out and to drag me in. It should be. It should be. To me, build the anticipation the night before. As you go to sleep, I, I, pray, pray, prayers, I, I pray prayers like this as I'm going to sleep at night. God, just help me in the morning. Help me. Wake me up not with a hundred thoughts about what I have to do and what I'm upset about or hurt about or frustrated about, but wake me up with a verse or your word. Wake me up needy and help me remember that what I need is, is out there on the desk. If we really believe it's the very words of God, if we really believe that, it gets us there. It gets us there. Verse 17. And say to Archippus, it's great names, right? Gosh, I'm not going to say this over and over again like I did last week, but I did to myself this week. So good. Archippus or Archippus. I mean, any place you put the accent, it's wonderful. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Archippus, he shows up one other time in the Bible in verses 1 and 2 of Philemon, which is another letter that's going with the letter to the Colossian church to a member in the Colossian church named Philemon. And in the first two verses, it says there, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. And then this is who it's written to. Three people. Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and, sorry, fourthly, the church in your house. So a, a man, a woman, and another man. And many believe that that is Philemon, and Aphia is his wife, and Archippus is his son. Okay, the way this is worded, that might be who this is. He might be Philemon and Aphia's son. And he is probably ministering in Colossae, in that church, in Epaphras' absence. So the pastor is gone. He's with Paul reporting. And this is the one there that Paul calls out to fulfill his ministry. So he's probably the guy who's filling in for Epaphras. He's probably the pastor that is ministering in his absence. And Paul has a, minister, a, a, a word for Archippus. And it is, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I wonder if that is a proactive statement or a reactive statement. So, is this a proactive statement where Paul is simply saying, hey, Archippus, keep up the good work and keep fulfilling your ministry? Or is it a reactive statement reacting to Archippus not? Which most commentators I read think it is. He's, he's dropping the ball and he's not fulfilling his ministry the way he should. He's not loving the people the way he should. And so Paul says to him specifically, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And if so, if that is a sort of reactive statement from Paul because Archippus is dropping the ball, can you imagine how piercing that line of the letter would be if you were Archippus? Because this letter is being read what? Publicly. In fact, Archippus, if he is leading in Epaphras' absence, may just be the one reading the letter. You wonder if he skimmed it beforehand and sort of mumbled over this line. And say that I remember that. Amen. How piercing would that be to, to read that again from Paul, from God? See that you keep up the good work. Whether he's dropping the ball or not, how piercing would those words be from the Apostle Paul? How motivating would those words be? See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I think most of us have been given ministries to fulfill. Most of us have been given ministries to fulfill. We have people, what ministry means, we have people 
that God has put in our life and He is requiring us to minister to them. That's primarily what is meant by ministry in Scripture. It's not a formal church program that you participate in. Are you a part of this ministry or that ministry or this ministry or that ministry? Though you can call those things ministries. But more properly speaking in Scripture, ministry is what happens between you and the people that God puts in your life. And God calls you to minister to them. And so we can ask this question of ourselves, you and me, am I, am I fulfilling the ministry that I have received from the Lord? Some of us have ministries that we, we don't want to fulfill. Or some of us have ministries that are very difficult to fulfill. Some of us have ministries that God has clearly given us and people to minister to, but we lack the the motivation or the courage to actually minister to them. To minister, for example, to provide for your family through a disappointing job. Or to love a disinterested spouse. Or to be a mom or a dad to patiently lead your children to God to minister to these in the various spheres that we have in our life to declare and demonstrate the power of the gospel in a draining or exhausting workplace these may be ministries that God has given you and the question is applicable am I am I what are the ministries that God has given me and again, that isn't this thing that is sort of detached from everything else and is in within the safe confines of the church bubble. And I put in my hours on this evening and on that evening, and then I leave feeling very satisfied that I'm in ministry. You see the tricky thing there. It's much more than that. Am I, not the ministry that I'm choosing to be involved in for whatever reason, many of which can be selfish, am I responding to the ministries that God has given me and the people He has called me to minister to? Am I faithfully ministering there? Archippus, Paul says, it is this church. Make sure, see to it that you minister to them. And finally, verse 18. We begin to wrap up our letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And let's take these three terse statements one at a time. Number one, Paul said, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Here's what's going on here. It would it would be customary for Paul to have a secretary or a scribe that would work with him. And Paul would actually dictate the letter to the secretary and the secretary would handwrite out the letter. For example, Paul dictated the book of Romans to a man named Tertius. Chapter 16, verse 22 of Romans. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter greet you in the Lord. It doesn't mean that the thoughts and concepts that are carried out in the letter are from Tertius. It means that he's writing it as the Apostle Paul dictates to him. But often, at the end of the letter, Paul will take up the pen himself and he'll write a few words from his own hand. That's what Paul's talking about here. When he says, I, Paul, write this greeting what you're reading right now with my own hand. Paul does this at the end of Philemon and at the end of 1 Corinthians and at the end of Galatians. Remember what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 11 of Galatians? See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I picture him just, I don't know what he's doing there. Sort of going up and down across the whole sheet. See with what large letters how important this is, what I am writing to you. We learn one reason that Paul does this at the end of his second letter to the Thessalonians. So why does Paul take the pen at the end and write part of it in his own hand? 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul said, I, Paul, 
write this greeting with my own hand. Okay, why are you doing that, Paul? This is the sign of genuineness or authenticity. In every letter of mine, it is the way I write. So there was probably some sentimental reasons Paul did it, but it is also clear that there were other letters circulating in this time that claimed to be from Paul, but weren't from Paul. And so Paul would authenticate his letters by writing something in his own hand at the end of the letter. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what he's doing at the end of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there's letters that are seeming to come from Paul that are not coming from Paul. And one of the ways he establishes the genuineness or authenticity of his letters is by taking that pen and to those it first goes to, authenticating it himself. Number two, Paul says in this final verse, remember my chains. Now Paul was literally in chains. This isn't the metaphor that he's using. Paul was literally in chains. Paul refers to his imprisonment and he refers to his chains at other times in other letters that he writes from prison. In Ephesians, three times. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And then in chapter 6, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul also brings this up in Philemon's 1.9. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And in regards to chains, Paul probably at least had shackles that were around his wrists and chains that went from those shackles to an armed guard. By the way, or incidentally, can you imagine being chained to Paul? That would either be the greatest thing to you in the world or the absolute worst thing to you in the world. But he at least had those kinds of chains. So as he's think about that as he's writing these words, I mean the chains are dragging across the papyrus. Galatians 6.17, Paul said, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And I'm sure that these marks included the marks that would have been left from the chains that were on Paul during his imprisonment. Paul speaks that I have the marks of Jesus on my body. I have the marks of being suffered for suffering for the gospel. I have physical marks on my body to prove it, to validate. I'm sure those included the chains that Paul wore. And why did Paul want the Colossians to, what did he tell them to do? Remember my chains. Why? Or why? Or what did Paul want the remembering of his chains to do in the minds and the hearts of the Colossians? Remember my chains. Why do you want us to remember your chains? Paul, what is it that you hope that will do in the minds and the hearts of the people to whom you're writing this letter if they now listen to you and remember your chains? Is he looking for pity? Is he wanting them to feel sorry for him? Is he looking for some sort of sympathy? Is he asserting his authority? 
I have authority vested in me by God, counted worthy of suffering for His sake. And I have the chains to prove it. Is it meant to bring that sort of weight, that authoritative weight to His words? Does He mean to shame the Colossians? I'm suffering. Look at what I'm going through. And there you are. And you're not suffering in this way. She'd be ashamed that you're enjoying the things that you have and not giving God credit or glory. And here I am chained up. What is it that Paul is doing here? I don't think it's any of those things. And I think Philippians 1, 12-18 is maybe helpful. Philippians 1, 12-18. Paul said there, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he, when he says what has happened to me, he means I'm chained up in prison. So he says what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. So, what are his chains doing when he writes to the Philippians? Well, he tells us that It's advancing the Gospel. My chains are advancing the Gospel because it's been become known through the entire Imperial Guard and the whole city that I'm here by choice, if you will. Like John Bunyan, centuries later. I could stop preaching the Gospel and deny Christ as Lord and that's a get-out-of-jail card. But I'm here suffering, imprisoned for Christ. And then something was happening with specifically the Christians who were around him in his imprisonment. The brothers. And what has happened? He said, they are becoming confident in the Lord. And that may seem strange. Confident. Like if we preach the Gospel, we'll go to prison too? They're becoming more confident which is leading to what? They are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. So Paul has seen the remembering of his chains by Christians lead them to boldness to speak the Word of God without fear. So maybe that's why Paul wants them to remember his chains. Because he has seen other Christians remember his chains And it has led them to speak the Word of God with boldness and without fear. So Paul says, remember my chains. Then finally, and in conclusion, to this letter, number three, grace be with you. Grace be with you. It definitely is not unimportant to note that Paul begins and ends every single one of his letters with grace. Every single one. You can go back and read the beginning and end of every single one of Paul's letters. He begins and ends with grace. Every single one of his letters, he ends with grace be with you in some way. And every single one of his letters begins with grace. Most of the time, he says grace to you. So at the beginning of every one of Paul's letters, Paul is saying, okay, here we go. You're about to read my letter. Grace to you. And then at the end of his letter, when they're done reading, Paul says in every one of his letters, grace be with you. Which is very appropriate for Paul to say at the beginning of his communication and the end of his communication because the Christian life is, as Charles Spurgeon's book title says all of grace. The beginning is of grace. And grace is required the entire Christian life. So it's very appropriate that Paul has grace as the bookends of every single one of his letters. Grace to you. and Grace be with you. We begin the Christian life with undeserved favor from God. 
And we require this undeserved favor to the very end of the journey. We begin by grace. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace is required the entire journey. 2 Corinthians 12.9 But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Remember the question that I asked earlier following the reading of Paul's admonition to Archippus? Are you fulfilling the ministry that God has given you? Are we fulfilling the ministries that God has given us? There's a very important piece in these last words of Paul's letter that remind us that if we are going to fulfill the ministries that God has given us, it will require grace. Fulfilling the ministries that God has given us will require grace. It is not something we can do on our own. When you are tired, when you are disappointed, when you are worried, or when you are numb, and when you are lonely, when you are guilty, and when you are selfish, it will require grace. To fulfill your ministry. To honor God. It will require God's undeserved love and favor and power to do what God has called us to do. A couple quotes from secondary resources and then a verse from our primary resource. John Piper says in his book, Future Grace, in regards to Paul beginning and ending his letters with grace, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to the Colossians. So he says, grace to you. That is, grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read. So he says, grace be to you. But at the end of the letter, as the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes that the reading is almost finished and the question arises, what becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? So we've got grace now, but now what when we leave? You may feel like this on a Sunday. Okay, here I am. I'm doing so well right now. I didn't sin this whole hour and a half. But I know what's going to go on outside those doors. We shouldn't have a science that's now entering the mission field. It's now entering the sin zone. I know what's waiting for me out there and the temptations and you know what? So much grace being ministered to me here through the song and through the prayers and through the fellowship and the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, but here it is coming to an end and there's an anxiety as we leave that. Okay, so we feel that approaching. He answers with a blessing at the end of every letter. Grace now be with you with you as you put the letter away and leave the church, with you as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse, with you as you go to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust, with you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch, Thus we learn that grace is ready to flow to us every time we take up the inspired Scriptures to read them and 
We learn that grace will abide with us when we lay the Bible down and go about our daily living. So grace is required by all of us Christians if we're going to faithfully live the Christian life. Grace. We've defined grace before as undeserved favor. So in other words, you and I have this enormous need if God is going to be glorified in our life this afternoon and this week, if God is going to be honored and glorified, and if it's going to go well for us and we're going to have any joy, then it is absolutely essential that God favors us. That He favors me this afternoon. That He favors me tonight. That He favors me tomorrow. And what I mean is that God has to be for me. And God has to be for you. And if God is not for you, but rather He has left you or is against you, if God is not for you this afternoon and for you tonight and for you this week, then you cannot live the Christian life. You cannot have joy. You cannot have any victory over sin. You cannot have boldness or courage. You cannot have that kind of Christian God-honoring, joy-filled life if God is not for you. And that favor from God has to be undeserved. So you have to have favor from God and that favor from God has to be undeserved so that you can't boast. So that you can't merit it or earn it, or deserve it, or lose it. This is what Paul means when he says, grace with you now. Undeserved favor. You cannot live this Christian life with any joy and for any good if the God of the universe is not for you. And you need that God being for you to be totally undeserved. Because if it's not undeserved and God is for you because you deserve for God to be for you, well now you're going to boast? Or you're going to try to earn it? Or you're going to fear that you've lost it? It will lead to problems. And no joy and no good. So you need God to be for you, Christian, and you need His being for you to be something that you cannot and do not earn or deserve. And that's what we have in Christ. Grace be with you. It is you can follow my instructions. You can fulfill the will of God. You can minister to those around you. And you can do that because you have grace. Not because, right? Not because you and I are so smart. You and I are the greatest thing to hit Sacramento and Placer County in century. Not because of the intelligence or the skills or the unity, the power that we have in and of ourselves, but because, because God is for you. And because God is for you, and you have not deserved it. Charles Spurgeon said, Our Lord Jesus is ever giving and does not for a solitary instant withdraw His hand. As long as there is a vessel of grace not yet full to the brim, the oil shall not be stayed. He is a sun ever shining. He is manna always falling round the camp. He is a rock in the desert ever sending out streams of life from His smitten side. The rain of His grace is always dropping. The river of His bounty is ever flowing. 
and the wellspring of His love is constantly overflowing. And in conclusion, let me just read Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your undeserved favor. God, thank You for saving us and setting us apart as Your people. And thank You now for doing Your good and gracious work in us and making us more like Your Son. Father, we pray that we would remember that as Your people, Your grace is with us not only in this place, but Your grace is with us as we leave this place today. That Your love is with us. That Your favor, Your care your concern that You are for us. And because You are for us, we can fulfill the ministry that You've given us. And we can live this life for Your glory and we can have joy. So thank You for Your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.